Adventist time, certainly not the only time, but it's a special time that we do ask the question, what does it mean to give God our hearts? The choice that's before us as we begin this Advent journey today of how we will journey through this season to Christmas. One way that we often choose, but I would suggest is not giving God our hearts, is just having each week being a little more Christmassy than the last. Smiling a little bigger, listening to the music a little more. Each week just building and building until Christmas Eve we're going to have the perfect Christmas with the perfect people living our perfect lives. Advent's not about that journey. It's about a journey actually moving towards God, including our pain. Not including, it's not just about plastic Christianity and plastic Christmas celebrations with big smiles on our faces. It's about moving through all that life is in its dreams and in its celebrations and in its heartache and in its sorrow. And having this candle, a candle of hope, burn brightly in the dark places of our lives and of this world. It's far more powerful than just getting a little bit more Christmassy each week. And I invite you on that journey with us. As we talk today about hope, and that's what this candle that has been, that light has been lit and is a light burns for hope. I invite you to listen to the words of Isaiah, starting in chapter 8, verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged. Very Christmassy, isn't it? And they will curse their king and their gods. They will turn their faces upward, or they will look to the earth but we'll see only distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice because before you, O God, as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would anoint us all to hear your word and to give all of our hearts unto you this day, this week, and always. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we said, we have a choice. Hope is not a word that exists for people whose lives are just perfect already. You don't need hope. Hope exists and this light burns for people who know darkness, who know difficulty, who know pain. Because indeed, like all of us, you are somebody who knows those things in your life. 
That if we were honest here, all of us have those places where today we are looking going, I didn't think it would be this way. I didn't think my life would be in this place. This is not the dream that I envisioned. I I thought my marriage would be in a different place. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought my children wouldn't be struggling with the things they are. I thought my grandchildren would be living in a safer time. I I, I thought that that the struggles of addiction and pain, I thought the, the unpopularity that I've experienced in my life, that these things would transform and change. I'm ready for these things to happen. Ready for life to be different than where it is today. And one choice, as we've said, is to just use this time to say, no, this, is, this isn't the time to deal with those things. This is the happy time. This is the time where we don't pay attention to those things that are hard. This is the time we just smile and we're Christmassy. That waits till January to go back to ordinary time, to real life. This is the happy moment. We all know those times. Some of them can be funny. Some of them, when things don't go the way we know they should, they actually can become things that, uh, that become part of our stories that are funny because we think we're in control and we're not. I'll tell you about one of those times to, to just get us in the mindset of thinking about the things that we planned on that don't go the way we know they should. And that time was when my Welsh fiance came to meet my family in America for the first time. As many of you know, and and before we get into the story, we need to do a linguistics lesson, okay? The linguistics lesson is this. The linguistics lesson is that you are gonna learn a word of Welsh now, okay? And and before we get it, Welsh is the oldest living language in Europe. So if this sounds funny to you, what the Welsh would say is, we were speaking it before you were speaking English. So we've got a claim on how it's supposed to work. In Wales, the way that they say the name of their country, Wales, which we say in English, is Cymru, okay? That's how you say it in Welsh. That's the name of their country in Welsh. So I'm going to say it, and then I want you to repeat it after me, because you've got to know this word. Cymru. Cymru. Say it again. Cymru. Cymru. Now, there are many ways that you can spell Cymru, but one of the most common is spelled this way. G-Y-M-R-U. I'm going to spell that again. G-Y-M-R-U. And you pronounce that? Exactly. Makes sense. (laughs) That's what you need to know because when my my Welsh wife, we, we met in Japan, as many of you know. We lived there for two years and we got engaged toward the end of our first year in Japan. And at the end of our first year, uh, you know, I said, you know, by the way, in this process of getting engaged, you haven't met my family, uh, which that can be important. So we should do that. My grandfather actually was like, do you sure you want to introduce her before she's got a ring on her finger? I'm like, no, no, no. I think this is a good idea to to do this and to expose her to the crazy and just like let her come and, and soak it in. So between our first and second years in Japan, I had been gone about 14 months we came back to America. It was best first time to the United States to meet my family, for my very British, very proper fiance to meet my family for the first time. Now I planned this journey in three stages. Now this is a big deal. You gotta think about bringing your fiance from a different country to America for the first time to meet your family who she's never met before. And I wanted it to go perfectly, right? I mean, every part of it had to be great. And so I planned it in three stages. The first stage was the travel. It was about 30, 36 hours or so of traveling from 
my rural apartment in Japan to picking her up to flying through Chicago because we don't want to fly direct because it's cheaper to go with a connecting flight. That's another issue in our marriage that you will just continue to have to live with. So we did a connecting flight through Chicago and then flew to Atlanta from there. Um, we we um, had the second phase. That's phase one travel. Phase two was my two younger brothers picking us up at the airport. And then phase three was dinner with my father and stepmother and my brothers at my dad's house. Because after traveling for 36 hours, the first thing you want to do is to sit down for a long dinner and have an involved conversation. Those were the three parts we planned. Travel, brothers picking up at the airport, dinner. First part, travel went pretty well outside of the fact that we had delayed in Chicago and so added about six hours to our journey. Uh, But little minor hiccup, uh, but we saved money on the tickets. And we flew into Atlanta and uh, arrived a little late. Phase one went pretty well, planned it out, went really well. We had planes, trains, and automobiles all involved in the travel, we made it. Phase two was where the wheels started coming off of the train. Phase two was where my two younger brothers were picking us up at the airport. And so phase two involves me writing them multiple times going, because you know what teenage boys are like. It's like, do you know what time we're coming in? Yes. Do you know the flight? Yes. Do you know how to check if it's delayed? Yes. Seriously, you need to be there, guys, because we don't have enough. Okay, Thomas, we'll be there. My middle brother, David, uh, is two years younger than me. My youngest brother, Hayes, is five years younger than me. They were both going to be at the airport. And this was before 9-11. So the people meeting you could meet you at the gate, if you remember that. You used to be able to walk right off the plane, and the people were just there. They didn't have to pass through security. So they were right there when we walked off. My middle brother, David, was the one who was there. When we walked off the plane, two of them weren't there. There was only one there. It was David. And David is, was going into his senior year of college. He went to Wofford College in South Carolina. He was kind of a very normally dressed guy. And, you know, we walk on the plane. I haven't seen him in over a year. And so he gives me this big hug. And we're like, oh, it's so good to see you. And Beth, being British, she's like, hello, it's nice to meet you. And David's like, we're not shaking hands. We give hugs. And like, I gave her this big hug. And she's kind of doing this. And he's like pulling her in. It's so good to see you. And then he says to me, have they told you about Hayes? Now, Hayes is my youngest brother, five years younger than me. Hayes has always been the pretty alternative one. I love him dearly. He's an incredibly smart, incredibly wonderful guy, but he's just, you know, he's his own, kind of goes to his own drumbeat. When I left, he was a senior in high school, long hair, um, kind of looked like he played in like Nirvana or something like that. And he, um, and so I was ready for something alternative. And David goes, have they told you about Hayes? And I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, they said that he's kind of going through some stuff. And he said, no, 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 he's not. It's, it's, he's changed a lot since you left. And at that moment, Hayes, who had been in the restroom, came out and all I hear behind me is this, TD, you're back. And I turned and looked and running at me is my youngest brother, Hayes, who in the year that I've been gone has turned into a blonde Bob Marley. His long hair has gone into dreadlocks and he was wearing purple velvet pants that he had sewn himself, and he's not a tailor, and they were baggy and kind of flying in all directions, and he's wearing this t-shirt. Now, something you may not know about dreadlocks, and you've gotta know this, dreadlocks can happen in one of two ways. The one way they can happen, that most people do it, is they go to a salon, and they kind of make your dreadlocks, and it takes hours, and you spend a lot of money. That's not the only way you get dreadlocks, although that's how stars in like Hollywood who have them, that's how they get them. The second way is that you just have really long hair and don't shower for about 10 months. That's a different way of getting them. And Hayes had chosen that path uh, to getting dreadlocks. In somewhere in his, his 
psyche as an 18-year-old guy, had decided that he didn't need to take showers anymore. And that had been going on for about eight or nine months uh, that he hadn't been showering. And so as he came up and gave me this hug, he's an 18-year-old guy in August in Atlanta. He smelled horrible. And he gives me this huge hug, and you're like, oh my days, it's good to see you. And Beth has one hand out to shake his hand, the other hand she's like, like this. And Hayes goes, come on and give me a hug, and kind of just envelops her in this cloud of smell. And, um, and she's looking, and she goes, these are your brothers. I'm like, yes, we're related. The genes are all shared, uh, you know, just so you know. We get in the car to drive home. David and Hayes are in the front. Beth and I are in the back, and our eyes are watering because it smelled so much. And finally, I look, I'm like, Hayes, you smell repugnant, man. Like, I can't believe this is how you're meeting my fiance. This wasn't the plan. And I'll never forget this. He, at that point, took his shirt off in the car. So he's now shirtless and lifts his arms up going, it's all natural, baby. You just got to love it. It's all natural, baby. And Beth's mouth falls open. And I'm going, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is... And then my brother David is embarrassed. He's driving, he punches Hayes. Hayes punches him back on the highway. And it's just like a normal family with three guys, like kind of journeying to my dad's house. That's phase two. Phase three, we then hit. And this was the phase I was worried about. Phase three was the one that I had prepared Beth for because it was meeting my father for dinner. My dad is a wonderful guy. But my dad is from South Georgia, and he's a huge guy. He's a really big guy, and he has a pretty thick southern accent. So I said, you know, you need to be ready. He's going to hug you. You can't do the handshake because he's just going to ignore that. And two things, he's going to call you honey, and he's going to call you sugar. And just, you, you, you know, she goes, why? I'm like, because he's from South Georgia, and that's just what they do. So, you know, be ready for it. So we walk into the back door with Hayes still fumigating outside, and we go into the kitchen, and my dad hears us come in, and he runs by me in the kitchen. I haven't seen him for 14 months. He runs straight past me, and he goes and grabs Beth in this monstrous hug, and he goes, Beth! Honey, it's so great to see you. I can't wait to talk to you all about Jim Roo. You will remember your linguistics lesson at the beginning of this. G-Y-M-R-U is pronounced I can't believe you're here. I want to talk to you about Jim Roo. I want to hear about Jim Roo. I want to know all about Jim Roo. And I could see from the look on her face, she was prepared for honey and sugar, but Jim Roo, we, neither of us had any idea what he was talking about. And so finally I said, Dad, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a year plus. But, uh, what are you talking about? And he goes, Thomas, Thomas, I'm shocked that you don't know. He goes, your wife, well, your fiance, she's from a different country. I said, I, I know that. And he goes, and in that country, they don't always speak English. They got this whole different language called Welsh. And in Welsh, they don't say Wales. They call their country Jimru. <laughs> At what point the light flashes, I still don't know what he's talking about. The light flashes on in Beth's head and she goes, oh, no, 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 Mr. Daniel, we pronounce that Cymru. And he goes, Cymru? She goes, yes, we pronounce that Cymru. He then calls my brothers and his wife, Susan, my stepmother, into the kitchen. Suze, boys, come here the way she says Jimru. Come in here and listen to this crazy way that she, she says Jimru. All right, Beth, they're all here. Say it again. Say that crazy thing the way you say Jimru. Do it again. And she's, I'm like, Dad, she doesn't need to do this. And he's like, no, 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 Thomas, they need to hear the crazy way she says Jimru. Go on and say it, Beth. Say Jimru again. And she's bright red at this point. She goes, we, we say Cymru. And then my father, who I love dearly, 
says, now honey, I can tell you now, there is no way on God's green earth that you can take the letters G-Y-M-R-U and pronounce it Cymru. I am here to tell you now, there is no way that can happen. And I looked at Beth and said, welcome to America. We're so, we're so glad that after speaking this language for 1600 years, you finally have us to teach you the way that it should be pronounced. Welcome. Jimru is still the name we refer to whales at. My daughters are here. If you ask them if they went to Jimru last summer, they'll be like, yeah, we went to Jimru last summer. My dad started a trend that's now sweeping South Wales of calling the, the, the nation Jimru. Everything I had planned about this trip, everything went wrong. Nothing went the way it was supposed to. And life is like that. And sometimes we have places where those stories are funny. You have Jimru stories as well, where you tried to control and dictate and work, and it just nothing went right. And then there are other times where those things happen and the stories don't become funny where things aren't the way they're supposed to be and they leave scars. And those scars get picked at over and over and over again. Places of pain and disappointment, places where you planned for your life to look different than the way it does right now. And nothing is going the way that it should. Those stories aren't always just funny. This year, Christmas, for many of us, will be a time when some of us will look and go, I didn't think it was going to be this way. And Isaiah is speaking to you today. Isaiah is not writing to plastic people living perfect lives who have perfect faith, who have this perfect existence. That's not what Isaiah is writing about. He's writing people who have stories, who have pain, who have heartache, who have disappointment, Isaiah is writing to a people 750 years before Jesus. 750 years who are, 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 are in a time when they are about to be invaded by another country. It's a time when the Assyrian Empire is about to take over Israel. And it's a time when the people are scared. It's a time much like the time that we're in today in some different ways. With what we see happening in Mali, with what we see happening in Paris, with what we see happening just recently in Colorado Springs, with what we see happening in Beirut, with what we see happening between Russia and Turkey, this is one of those times where things feel a little shaky for many of us. They feel a little ominous. And Isaiah's writing to people in an imperfect world like that. And he writes about hope. And there's two things that Isaiah writes about that he says that engages us about hope in this passage. And I want to talk very briefly about them both because I would like you to choose this path is towards Christmas to engage a process of real hope. But the first thing that Isaiah says that real hope comes out of is that real hope doesn't come out of avoiding and putting a smile in your face and being Christmassy. That real hope comes from moving towards places of conflict, moving towards disappointment, moving towards those places where you're like, I didn't think my life would be this way. Isaiah says you move into it. And when you move into conflict and disappointment and heartache, he says that you then look around and you have to ask a question that he challenges the people of Israel with. And it's this, have you been a contributor to the disappointment that exists in your life? Have you contributed something? Now, that's a hard question. 
And Isaiah's not saying from the beginning, and neither am I, that all the heartache that exists in your life is your fault. He's not saying that at all. But he also isn't swinging to the other extreme and saying what we normally do as human beings, which is give you a long litany of who else is to blame for everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's wrong with our lives. Last week, we invited you into a process of daily confession, and I hope that you entered into that. But one of the things that we, for instance, got you to think about is where have you failed to do what you know is right? Where have you done what you know is wrong? Where are relationships in conflict? Anybody have that as you're moving towards Christmas? Moving to those times when you're like, well, this, you know, this family dynamic is strange, it's tense, it's hard, it's weird, people aren't talking, there are relationships that aren't right. Isaiah is saying uh, that you have to reflect on have you maybe contributed something to that? That lots of times, for instance, in broken relationships or in tough places in our marriage or in our friendships, we're experts at what the other person's doing wrong. We're experts at how, what they've done wrong and how they're not loving and how they don't care. But what Isaiah is saying throughout this book is, we need to be a people who have the strength and the faith to reflect on ourselves. Because what all of us will see in places of conflict is that there are probably patterns of behavior that we have contributed to. Patterns of behavior of how we respond and react in situations that cause us to get sideways with different folks. And the good news Isaiah is saying is if you don't ignore it, if you don't push it away to be Christmassy, because it's not the time of year to deal with that, he says if you move towards it, something really wonderful can happen. And what's wonderful is that people can change. We can become different. Pain can shape us if we let it. It can mold us. And so if we sit there and go, how have I contributed to this? We can actually become different people. Whereas if we push it away and act like it's not there, we don't actually change. The message of hope of Isaiah, part of it is you can be different. Your life can be different. But to do that, you've got to ask the hard questions of how am I a contributor to the broken places in my life and in this world? The second thing that he says that we need to hear at this time of year especially is that while we walk in darkness in different ways, while there is pain and heartache and disappointment in all of our stories and in all of our lives, Isaiah is reminding us that our God is a God who shines light into dark places. And that your pain and that your heartache and that your disappointment and the places where you look in your life or in your family or in your neighborhood or in our country or in our world and you say, I thought it would be different from this. Isaiah is making a proclamation of hope and saying that that pain and that heartache and that disappointment will not be the end of your story. It will not have the final say in your life. It won't always be this way. That God changes and transforms that in a world that was broken, God sends his son into that world. And when the brokenness of that world breaks his son upon the cross, resurrection and new life happens. That God is not a God today who is absent from your heartache. That God is a God who's entered into our heartache and transforms it and redeems it. It's a message of hope that this candle burns for broken people who have broken lives, not for perfectly Christmassy people who just get happy. So you have a choice today. It's a choice as we enter into this Advent season. It's a choice that I invite you to consider today and this week. 
The first choice is you just spend the next four weeks getting a little bit more Christmassy each week, making that smile a little bigger, making sure everybody knows that you've got this happy, wonderful, perfect existence, and just every day becomes a little bit better than the day before. Just going that, and that way is, is so appealing, and yet it's a weak vision of Christmas because what it means is, is that we say, oh, we can't turn on the news right now because that's depressing. Let's look at Christmassy stuff. You know, we can't deal in the dysfunction of relationships and family and in dynamics because that's not Christmassy. We need to protect the Christmas season because if those things come in, oh my gosh, it's gonna ruin it all. That's a weak vision of Christmas. Christmas doesn't need to be protected from the heartache of this world. Christmas doesn't need to be protected from the dysfunction that exists in our lives. Isaiah's candle burns today, a candle of hope that says you move towards it and you take the pain and you take the disappointment and this is the season to hold it out in front of God and to let God transform it and to let God change it. What choice will you make? What journey will you take? May we choose the path of hope. Hope of God's redemption of all the brokenness in our lives. Amen. Amen. So where do you start? Where do you begin to hold that out in front of God? I would suggest to you today there is no better place than right here. Right here at this table where we'll take communion. Because this table is not uh, just a table of happiness. It's not a table of just acting like life's okay. This is a table where brokenness is received, where disappointment and heartache and loss are encountered. Because Jesus says this is a place where his own brokenness is experienced, but it is also the place where that brokenness is encountered and met by grace and by love. And a reminder that the cup of salvation overpowers all of that brokenness. This table is where we begin. Come to this feast today, holding your pain before God, and He will meet you here today. Amen.